0: The Whole Health Cure with Dr. Sharon Burquist, the podcast that brings you inspiration and skills for living a healthy and fulfilled life. Welcome to the Whole Health Cure podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sharon Berquist. On this podcast, we explore the science and provide inspiration and skills for living your happiest, most fulfilling, and healthiest life. Today, we're going to be talking about harnessing the power and intelligence of the heart. I'm joined by Dr. Roland McCready. Roland McCready is director of research at the HeartMath Research Center at the HeartMath Institute. As a psychophysiologist, Dr. McCready's research interests include the physiology of emotion, heart brain communication, and the global interconnectivity between people and the Earth's energetic systems. Findings from this research have been applied to the development of tools and technology to optimize individual and organizational health, performance, and quality of life. Dr. McCrady has acted as principal investigator in numerous studies examining the effects of emotions on heart-brain interactions and on autonomic, cardiovascular, hormonal, and immune system function and outcome studies to determine the benefits of positive emotion-focused interventions and heart rhythm coherence feedback in diverse organizational, educational, and various clinical populations. He's been featured in a number of documentary films, such as I Am, The Truth, The Joy of Socks Movie, The Power of the Heart, Solar Revolution, and The Living Matrix, among many others. Dr. McCready, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Oh, it's great to be here. Always a pleasure.
0: Oh, thank you. And, you know, the science of the heart, and, you know, I, I heard you speak about this several years ago, has been Just so fascinating to me. Can you start by just describing the heart and and the signs around the heart?
1: That's a big topic. Uh, Why don't (laughs) we uh, start, I think, for a lot of the listeners who may not be familiar with how the heart and brain communicate, uh, just some of the basic anatomy. Um, You know, for example, um, the heart sends more information to the brain than the brain sends to the heart. Now, that sounds like some new discovery to a lot of people. This has been known since the late 1800s. Uh, in fact, psychology was based on this understanding for, for many years, from you know, the late 1880s until the 1920s and 30s. And then and that was forgotten. You know? We got all glamoured by the brain. and, it, and Don't get me wrong. I, I want a brain, and I want it to work well. But the importance of, of the heart. And the, the paradigm kind of shifted back to people paying more attention to the heart in the early 1970s when researchers observed that the heart was acting like it had a mind of its own. In fact, that was in the writings of that day, that the heart is acting like it has a mind of its own, that uh, the activity in our autonomic nervous system should be telling the heart to slow down, but it would speed up instead and, and do just do all these things. And not only that, it, had a, it was doing things that preceded the brain's knowledge that actually prepared the brain for its next you know activity uh, to facilitate it or these different things. And so that, that research group introduced a couple of terms into the scientific literature in that era and that those terms are called cortical inhibition and cortical facilitation. In other words, depending upon the activity of the heart, you know the, the thinking part of our brain, what we get paid to go to work for, is either scrambled, and we can't think clearly, or it's facilitated. Uh, They didn't know the mechanisms back then, they just were doing all the observations. And one of the fields that's really helped clarify a lot of this, and really we now know the mechanisms very very clearly, and at the end of the day it's pretty simple, but basically we now know uh, through the field called neurocardiology that the heart actually has what's been nicknamed the heart brain, uh, technically called the Intrinsic Cardiac Nervous System. So there actually is a functional brain within the heart, and the, these neurons in the heart um, have short-term memory, long-term memory, neuroplasticity, neurogenesis—all the things you would ascribe to a functional brain. So the, the all these neural signals being sent up through the autonomic nervous system. Uh, in fact, the vagus nerve, which I'm sure you're familiar with, that's a, a term that's beginning more popular in the, the lay public as well now. Which is the main nerve of the parasympathetic nervous system. So the vagus nerves have thousands of fibers that carry information between the brain and the body, especially the thoracic cavity, you know, the organs and glands in our chest and our, in our gut. And 90% of these neural fibers are carrying information from the body back to the brain. It's only 10% that are brain down. And most of those are coming from the heart and cardiovascular system. Now Sharon, once those, those, those neural impulses get up to the brain, you know, to, to keep it simple here, to our the lower parts of the brain, the, the medulla, of the brain stem, there's direct neural pathways to almost every major brain center. So uh, to the amygdalas for example, in fact the activity in the amygdalas, which are our emotional centers, to keep it simple, are literally synchronized to the heart. Every time the heart beats, the cells in the core nucleus of the amygdala fire in unison with them. So basically what we now understand is the amygdala is basically monitoring the rhythms of the heart and looking for pattern matches between you know, our, our historical experience. and That's really what creates the texture and feeling of an emotion that you know, the higher parts of the brain then label um, you know, as certain types of feelings or emotions. And I think these these kinds of research findings really help us understand what I think many of us have intuitively understood and known all the way. So, uh, like, for example, most people don't, uh, when they ask their, if you're a guy, ask your wife to marry him, you don't say, I love you with all my brain, right?
0: Um, it, exactly, Roland. And I was just thinking that of applying what you just said to emotions to really understand how we process an emotion, Right. So, for example, love, like you said, Um, the communication, you know, from the heart to our amygdala and the rest of our brain to understand that emotion, um, how is that communication or intuitive sense understood?
1: Say a little more. I'm not exactly you. you threw an intuitive sense there, so that, that, yeah, that could take yeah. you in a whole different direction.
0: That, that's right. Now, um,
1: I'm happy to go there.
0: Yeah, but how do we actually label an emotion that originates in the heart?
1: Well, um, I think it's we have to be careful by saying emotions originate in the heart or the brain because the one thing once you dig deeper into emotional experience we have to realize it's a complex system that all has to work together um to create emotions it's our hormonal system our nervous system the heart the brain these are all it's all a complex system but this might help connect some dots a lot of the emotions that we experience on the day-to-day life you know and if we had a computer printout at the end of the day i think most people would be shocked at how much of our, our emotions, our thoughts and emotions, and our, our, behave, our reactions that we have, and the way we interact with people in life is really based on history. So one of, the, uh, one of my mentors, and I have to give credit here, most of what I really know about the deeper aspects of brain function uh, was a um, guy named Carl uh, Not a, Younger people won't know that name, but he's a pretty famous guy. He was the, considered the father of modern cognitive neuroscience. And he's a guy who coined the term executive function, for example, for the frontal parts of the brain, the frontal cortex, and many, many other, other things. And these were talking about emotions. That was one of his passions, to understand how, how we have emotions. And what, what he discovered, and uh, what I learned from him, is the way we need to think of the amygdala, and there's a lot of misinformation out there. You know, like people call the amygdala the fear center, and, and that's just nonsense. Um, from Dr. Preham's perspective, what the amygdala does is determine what is familiar and what is not familiar. And it's doing that from the external, our external sensory systems, you know, in other words, what we hear, what we see, what we smell, etc. But it's also another part of the amygdala is doing the same thing from the body's internal systems, what we call interception. For example, the rhythms of the heart you know, our breathing rhythms, the different background hormonal rhythms, and things that are all going on. But primarily the input from the heart is the biggest player in this process. So, what for the amygdala to determine, I'm going to talk about interception now, the the internal uh, emotional processes rather than the external world. For it to determine what is familiar and not familiar, it has to have something to compare the now to, right? And that's what uh, is called our familiar baseline. Or our baseline reference patterns, so we're always comparing everything that we're that's going on inside of our body, or that we're that's uh, coming in through our sensory systems of the external world, through this process, familiar or not familiar. So I'll give you an example. In my early childhood, I, one of my grandmothers, she constantly worried about us. In her world, if she wasn't worrying, she didn't care, I and mean, she drove us crazy. Right? So her baseline or her familiar reference was one of anxiety and worry. And this is true for a lot of people in today's world. So what, here's the key, what is familiar, the brain likes a match between the, the inner reference and the current, and that match means familiar is what we experience as comfortable, even if it's not good for us, like constant worry or fear or quick to anger, you know, those familiar reactions that we have. Hope I'm making sense here. I'm trying to explain.
0: Absolutely, that.
1: yes. So, the it's this match-mismatch, familiar-not-familiar, that's really going on at the subcortical level, the amygdala. And then you've got your other cortical regions, which are the last to get the information, that are monitoring that and putting labels on it. Right? Like, I feel hungry. I feel you know, uh, stressed, I feel anxious, I feel frustrated, if we're paying attention uh, to do that. So that's really what's going on. Now, if you get, um, so these baseline references become really important, because that's really what, um, and once a baseline is established, we can call them habits, but it's really deeper than that. Because uh, it's really what everything we perceive goes through this filter I'm talking about. Um, make, we may be getting too deep for some audiences here. I don't know. But um, the, the point is why this is important. Let me um, go there, uh, Sharon, is that without changing our inner baseline references, there is no such thing as sustained change in our emotional experience. So let's say somebody is stuck in a fear or an anxiety or a, an anger loop, that's familiar and as crazy as it sounds, uncom- what's comfortable. So for that, for growth to occur, for us to get more in charge of ourselves, to self-regulate our emotional diet, and this is really important because it's emotions that run the show in our body. And what's, that's the primary drivers of the activity in our immune system and our hormonal system our nervous system, or what we feel, not what we think, right? So the where this got really imp- important, and it took me a long time to finally really grasp this from what Dr. Prebrum was trying to tell me for so many years, is that the only way, in hindsight, this is really silly that it took me so long to grasp this, that the only way to establish or change one of these baseline reference patterns that everything else is taking off from in the, you know, in our perceptual world, in our emotions, is to change the input from the body, especially the heart, to the amygdala because that's what establishes these reference patterns. It's the repeated activity. Now this helped explain a lot of our observations early on in our research back in the the early 1990s as to what we, we were the first to observe as far as I know that emotions are best reflected in the pattern of our heart rhythms, not our heart rate, but the actual rhythms, the pattern of rhythms. Now, this is where a picture's worth a thousand words. Because if you plot out the heart rhythm uh, that we have when we're feeling impatience or frustration or especially anger, it's a very chaotic-looking rhythm. Whereas when we're feeling emotions like kindness, um, appreciation, kindness, love, the rhythm of the heart is completely different, and that's what we now call a coherent rhythm. It's a very different, smooth, sine-wavy looking rhythm, which now we now know is reflecting that the activity in our, ner- our nervous system is in sync. Uh, so it's a literally more harmonious activity, so a very energy-efficient state to be in. I'm, I'm saying a lot of things here shortly, but, but hopefully this is making sense to people. So it, the later understandings made perfect sense as to why emotions are most reflected in the pattern of our heart rhythms. Because that's what the amygdala is detecting and labeling and, you know, uh, familiar, not familiar. But the key point is we can't think ourselves into a new baseline. Not directly, anyway. I I better pause here and let you ask some more. Because I'll ramble on forever here. Oh,
0: this this is really just fascinating of, you know, how to, like you are talking about how to um, think about, changing these coherent patterns and, and changing really our physiology um, through this mechanism. Can you talk a little bit more so um, capturing the variability in the heart rhythm um, in the patterns that are admitted, how to capture it and then how we can influence it right?
1: to right. Um, sure. Well, it's, it's very, in, in today's world, but back when we started, it was quite challenging, but today it's very easy to um, see your own heart rhythms in real time. There's many very inexpensive devices uh, now. Um, Balance is one, M-Wave uh, that we make. Other companies have copied us now and a lot, of, a lot of different apps and things out there. So you can actually see what your heart rate variability looks like in real time, which is a great learning tool. Now, if you want to change your HRV or the rhythms of the heart, there's a really easy way to do it. And I actually call it grandma's wisdom, right? Uh, for example, you know, you're a little kid and you fall down and you skin your knee or something and you're crying and grandma picks you up and what's the first thing she usually says? Breathe, honey. Take a, take a breath. Right? Because grandma knows. That until you calm down, you're not going to be able to stabilize or hear anything or, you know, communicate, you know. So breathing, there's neural connections from the lungs that go up to the the nerves in our brain that modulate the outflow of parasympathetic activity down to the heart. So whatever our breathing rhythm is, is also modulating one aspect of the heart rhythm. Now this is actually the mechanism of why breathing techniques work. Uh, so I've done many, you know, programs and training for and a lot of different audiences around the world over a lot of years. In fact, we, we had the honor of developing the resilience training program for the U.S. Navy in, in their highest stress mission. So I uh, trained about five thousand, uh, you know, sailors, men and women through that era. But you know, law enforcement and hospital nurses, doctors. I mean, we we work with everybody, and I've used to often ask, well, how many of you've learned a breathing technique? You know, depending upon the audience, it'd be about everybody or nobody, right? Uh, and then, but where you do, you ask, well, in what context? I and mean, you get everything from Lama's class to yoga, to meditation, to shooting, you know, to be a better shot, to scuba diving, to, you know, and the list goes on. Well, the reason that breathing techniques are so universally taught, you know, in meditation, yoga, or just very practical things, like being a better shot if you're a police officer, uh, is actually not well understood by most people. It's not that you're getting more oxygen in the blood or something. You're actually modulating the rhythm of the heart through, your, through conscious, because breathing is something we can consciously, easily interact with and control. Right? I mean, you can easily say, okay, I'm going to breathe slower and deeper. I'm going to take a deep breath and do it. That's modulating the rhythm of the heart through the, what, what the descending neural pathways to the heart, which then radically changes the pattern of the inputs coming up from the heart to those other brain centers like the amygdala and the thalamus and the insula, which then the, the brain goes, oh, this is a pattern I recognize as calm, as comfortable, as safe, right, as feeling good. So that's one of the reasons that breathing is a, a easy way to take the intensity out of a stress reaction or an emotional reaction right? Or we stub our toe, you know, right? even just taking some deep breaths can have to actually help take the intensity out of the pain because of those mechanisms. That makes sense? It uh, does.
0: And, and I'm thinking of that as an application to, you know, a lot of people experience a lot of stress and, and poor sleep and get into patterns where um, they, you know, have a hard time um, not kind of Kind of thinking through that stressful cycle repeatedly. And, you know, deep breathing is certainly one mechanism. Um, And I'm also thinking of, you know, techniques that you have also done a lot of research on affecting heart rate variability um, to get people into a better state. Can you talk about some of the other techniques um, that influence heart rate variability?
1: Yeah. Oh, happy to. I just wanted to get you asked what's a, a way we can influence, and that's the simplest one yeah. uh, is is breathing. In fact, we can even um, improve breathing, the ability to help take uh, to help us manage stress or just to add energy to our system and when we're feeling a little bit tired. And we call it heart focus breathing. And there's an important reason for that. But if while you're doing breathing, well, a couple of things. We actually have a resonant frequency in our physiology that uh, is a very important frequency that has to do with the information flowing between the heart and brain and the lungs. And uh, in frequency language, that's a a frequency of 0.1 hertz, hertz, which equates in time to a rhythm of 10 seconds. So that's a rhythm we always have in our heart rhythms, is this 10-second rhythm. And when we're in a a coherent state, which we naturally shift into, by the way, Sharon, when we feel good. So it's not just breathing. I mean, even if we don't think about breathing, when you if you walk out your door in the morning, and it's just one of those beautiful days, and you just go, Oh, God, what a gorgeous day. Right? You know, the, the right temperature, the blue sky, you know, whatever, you just have that feeling of, you know, maybe not awe, but you're actually feeling appreciation, even though you may not think I'm feeling appreciation. That, just that, God, what a gorgeous day, that feeling, you're, that, that's a, a feeling that will naturally shift the heart rhythm into that more coherent or optimal uh, pattern. So it, now, if we, once we understand our resonant frequency and that emotions is a big driver of the activity in our nervous system and breathing, we can combine them and have a very powerful effect. Very quick intervention. So we call it heart-focused breathing. And the instructions for heart-focused breathing are shift. Focus your attention in the area of the heart. Imagine your breath is flowing in and out of your heart or chest area. Breathe in a little slower and deeper than than, than usual, you know, and then find an, a comfortable, easy rhythm that's comfortable. Okay, so that's step one: heart-focused breathing, and the focus of attention in the area of the heart is important. Because we know, there's a whole industry based on the fact that where we put our attention in our body, we can cause specific physiological changes. In this case, we're wanting to shift the rhythm of the heart. So now if we breathe at a rhythm, uh, to start with, around four or five seconds on the in-breath and four or five seconds on the out-breath, we're now breathing at our natural resonant frequency. Now that quickly shifts our physiological system into coherence. Okay, so that's a great quick way to, you know, recharge our inner batteries, so to speak. But breathing techniques have been around for thousands of years, and if that if it's a whole solution, we wouldn't have all the stress we do in today's world. So and for a lot of people, that can become uncomfortable breathing at that rhythm after about a minute, simply because it's not familiar. The amygdala is saying this is not familiar. We're not familiar, we're we're not familiar, our physiology with feeling good. So it's recognized by the amygdala as a mismatch and therefore uncomfortable, even though it's really an optimal state that is really has a lot of benefit. So adding the next step, which is to activate feelings of appreciation or care, or kindness, you know, actually breathe that feeling. Now this brings in another shift that starts shifting the activity in our hormonal systems as well. And adds the other, I'll call it more energetic or emotional component that we natural that naturally creates coherence in our body and and in synchronization. But it it sounds simple and a lot of people think, well, I do that already, but do they really, right? In a a conscious way, um, especially when so a lot of what we when we teach our the HeartMath techniques, it's really about learning to be more self aware of our emotional diet, what we're feeling, and learning to intervene right in the moment that we're getting triggered, like that person cut us off in traffic, and there, no, right there, you want to catch it, right? Because those just getting frustrated or impatient, like in traffic, we set in motion at least 1400 biochemical changes in our body that deplete our energy not going to make the traffic move any faster, right? So there's a more intelligent approach. Or you're in a staff meeting and that person that, you know who they are, they say that thing, and but they're, we're triggered. Um, anyway, I hope I'm making some sense here.
0: Yeah, and, and I think a lot of people listening can relate because I think it's so easy to revert to these patterns, right? Anger and traffic, frustration in different situations.
1: Our, our familiar baseline.
0: Exactly. If the So the next question then is that if that's the familiar and if comfort um, and peace and internal coherence is unfamiliar, how much time or repetition is needed until we establish a new familiar?
1: Great question. Now that there's a lot of variability in that because it depends on How sincere and meaningful somebody is about their practices, right? Uh, How deeply established is the old familiar baseline to begin with? You know, like if it was around a traumatic event or something, that can be a pretty deeply ingrained neural pattern. But on average, about six weeks. Now that may sound like a long time. That's nothing when you compare, when you think about lifetimes that are spent stuck in old patterns, in the old familiar and it it uh is actually quite rapid and it it's really not that hard it just we we however though we do have to put some effort in in the beginning because we are having to unwind some old uh well ingrained neural habit patterns or they're actually they're literally neural activity patterns you know you talk about neuroplasticity a lot and well, I don't but it's kind of obvious that the brain has neuroplasticity but um the, so we've got a, um, two things. Regularly practicing coherence to, to help establish these new baselines. In other words, we get, uh, and if we're going to really go about this, it's not, this is where it's nice to have the, the devices that actually feed back your, your heart rhythm patterns in real time. That way you can actually see, am I making the shift into the coherent rhythm? And that's very easy to do these days with these devices. So regular practice of that. And it doesn't have to be long sessions, right? It could be five minutes a couple of times a day so that we're starting to train our brain and nervous system into what these coherent rhythms are like and what they feel like. So they start becoming familiar. That, that's part of the process. Then the other is is that I kind of alluded to before, Sharon, becoming more self-aware of our emotional world and our emotional diet. And, and getting on to, oh, there's that trigger. I'm starting to feel impatient or frustrated or anxious or whatever the, the draining emotion is. And then use a technique right in that moment to turn around that emotional energy. Now, I'm not talking about suppressing. That never works because that suppresses all emotions, the good end, you know, the regenerative end, the, the draining ones. But to turn around that energy. So it might, let's say that, Um, you're in a meeting and and there's that person that you have some history with that tends to disagree with you or just say the thing or they look like somebody that beat you up in high school and they might, whatever the the historical trigger is. When you start feeling that to turn around that energy and it's kind of like a metaphor here is like the emotions are like the train leaving the the station. You know, they, They get going and once they get going, that energy is really hard to shift. Once an emotion really gets activated for for most people, kind of like the momentum of the train. So if we catch it early enough, it's a lot easier to turn it around. So turn it around into what? Well, it may be too far to go to maybe appreciation, you know, and I'm not even saying you have to appreciate the person that's triggering you. But how about turning that energy around into one of compassionate latitude? right cutting that person some slack so the thing they're doing that's getting you is probably the same thing that you do that triggers others or that you will do or have done or some similar thing so cut them some slack right compassionate latitude maybe take some of the significance out of that because it's probably really not that big a deal and realizing that we're really giving them control over our inner world unknowingly. So it's really having a, a meaningful intent to be in charge of our own emotions and our own self. Does that help or does that? It know?
0: does. So let's take that scenario. A person walks into the meeting. There's some trigger that sets their emotions to this path that they don't want to go towards. In that moment, do they think of giving that person more compassion
1: and latitude well the first step is heart focused breathing okay startly to put your attention to heart and you can this is something that you don't have to close your eyes we're not talking about going off and doing a hot tub or meditating here or something we're talking about right in that moment you have to breathe anyway right so this is something new with your eyes open nobody needs to even know you're doing it So you just put your focus of attention in the area of the heart, breathe at that coherence rhythm, five seconds in, five seconds out. That's immediately changing the input to the brain. And that's having a lot of benefits. It's actually facilitating synchronization within our cortex. So we now suddenly have more capacity to self-regulate. So right in that pause, you can kind of think of it as an inner pause. The trigger's starting, I'm going to catch the energy, heart-focused breathing, right? So that takes the intensity out; and it lowers the intensity enough that we now have a much higher ratio of a chance of actually shifting to, say, compassionate latitude, or simply breathing a feeling of patience or calm, right? So that we don't, you know, have the the eye roll or the body language that let you know that lets everybody know, oh, we're triggered, right? So that we can maintain our composure in that moment, and uh, you know, maybe come up with a much more appropriate thing to say mm-hmm. right, or that, that shifts the energy in the room or the dynamics or it depends on the context, of course.
0: Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, I think um, we can all relate to that and, and how easy it is to react negatively and, and not focus on better ways to handle situations um, for people who are interested in doing more, learning more. Um, you know, having that feedback through technology, um, what would you recommend as a starting point for people?
1: Well, most people have smartphones these days. So I would recommend a device called the Inner Interbalance, uh, which is a sensor that uh, you, the little clip that you put on your earlobe and the thing that then talks to your phone, whether it's either Android or, or the Apple or iOS devices. And uh, these are fairly inexpensive. And then the software that's called the Inner Balance trainer is, is free. Um, that's a great starting point, and it um, tracks your progress and all kinds of cool things that, that happen for in that device. Uh, for the more professional um, settings, uh, the M-Wave Pro or M-Wave Pro Plus is a device that a lot of therapists and doctors and you know thousands of uh, physicians and uh, healthcare providers have been certified in heart math practices now and to teach their patients, so they typically would use that device. But for the general person just wanting to... Uh, you know, either improve their performance or just feel better. The, the uh, inner balance is a great, great way to start with.
0: Mm-hmm. And my final question for you, and I appreciate all your time and all your wisdom is you um, have such a breadth of research and knowledge in understanding, um, you know, the heart and the heart's communication. If there is one thing that you wish more people knew. Um, yeah what
1: would that be all right okay so I'm going to try and do this shortly because we could do a whole show <laughs> on this uh, you you mentioned this before we started the uh, the podcast that you heard me talk about in the other presentation so we've been talking about heart brain and all that but when, so when we put electrodes on the body to measure the heartbeat called the electrocardiogram or we stick electrodes on a person's head to measure their brain waves the EEG what we're measuring is current flow but we know basic physics is whenever we have a flow of current, we also create a magnetic field. Now, it takes a different instrument to measure that. That's called a magnetometer. So the heartbeat is, uh, many is measured in millivolts versus microvolts of the brain. So it's a huge signal. So the magnetic field that's generated by the heart easily, well, one of the things about magnetic fields is they penetrate, they go through things. This is why our cell phones work indoors. Right, so we're using magnetic, electro, but mag- the magnetic components that goes through the wall. You, you can be on a phone call even in an elevator, right? Mm-hmm. So if you don't believe me, quit using your phone. Uh, you know, in fact, my first career was a communication engineer for Motorola, but that's a whole other story. But but the point here is, is when the heart beats, we also radiate a magnetic field into the space around us. And I'm not talking about an aura. This is something that I can measure here in the lab with a device called a magnetometer. And with today's instruments, the sensitivity of the instrument is that you can measure the heart's field about three feet from the body. You can measure a brainwave about an inch, right? So clearly the heart's the big field. And what we've been able to show is that whatever we're feeling, not thinking, feeling, is radiated. That information is carried by the heart's field into the space around us. Okay? And that, that actually, many studies now have shown that the information radiated by our personal field environment in our field is detected by the brain and nervous systems of other people and has measurable physiological effects on others so to answer your question in a very short way what do i wish people would do or take away from this is to pause throughout the day and ask themselves what am i feeding the field wow because it matters, and it has effects on not only us and our own health, but others. Am I feeding the field with love, compassion, kindness, appreciation? Or am I feeding the field with inf- fields, uh, information of anxiety, and um, etc., impatience, and so on? Because it, it matters. And maybe in another podcast we can go into how that even has larger effects to, on uh, even the, the Earth itself.
0: Oh, you know, that's such an amazing component of how humans communicate and what a, a lovely way to, to end our conversation. Roland, I wanna thank you for sharing all this and all the decades of research in understanding this heart-brain communication, which is um, it's just such a powerful way for us to better understand, um, our, you know, how we respond in situations and, and as you just elegantly put how we influence others around us. So I want to thank you so much for all you do and for your time and sharing all this information today.
1: It was my pleasure. And we'll have to do it again sometime.
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: Thank you. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye.
0: The Whole Health Cure is brought to you by Emory Lifestyle Medicine and Wellness. For more information about wellness assessments, classes, and other resources, please visit our website, emoryhealthcare.org livewell. This material is copyrighted by Emory University.